Each episode is accompanied by a playlist curated by me, DJ Tequesta, on YouTube and Spotify. You can find the playlist in the show notes. So sit back and relax, because it's time to get stank. Memphis, what up? Before 3-6 Mafia was popping their collar and riding spinners down Bill Street in Bluff City, the world was moving its feet to the funky chicken dance by Rufus Thomas in 1970. But before we get to that, we gotta go way back. The area we now call Memphis was in the Northwest Territory of the Chickasaw Nation. The Chickasaw Nation ruled all over the Mississippi Valley. They lived in sophisticated town sites with a highly developed ruling system and strong class lines. They were mostly agrarian and successfully traveled between both coasts to trade with other tribes and imperial actors. I couldn't find research about how long they had been in territory, but one thing my research did make clear was that the Chickasaw could throw some hands. They was giving folks that beat down. Many historians give the Chickasaws credit for the United States being an English-speaking country, because no other tribe played a more impactful role in Britain's victory over France for control of Turtle Island. During the irredeemable formation of the empire, there was constant major territory disputes between the violent European factions. From 1756 to 1763, it was the British versus the French, and each of them had their fair share of indigenous allies. The Chickasaw, allied with the British, were the decisive factor in many of the battles, eventually resulting in British domination of Turtle Island. After the French and Indian War in 1763, the English colonizers gained control of the bluffs of now Memphis, even though the area was still under Chickasaw control. What's a bluff, you ask? I'm glad you asked. A bluff is a steep cliff overlooking a plain or body of water. It may be composed of beach sand, soil, or a rock formation. Tennessee would become a U.S. territory in 1790, then the state in 1796, and in 1819, the city of Memphis would be founded with four city blocks and a population of about 50 folks. Now, like I said, the Chickasaws was about that smoke. Legend has it, they never lost a battle until they fought with the Confederacy during the American Civil War. Now, why would an indigenous tribe fight on the side of a traitorous, slave-holding, white supremacist project? The simple answer is that they owned slaves too. Prior to the invasion of European colonists, there were tribes who practiced less permanent forms of slavery, usually involving prisoners of war who were eventually released. But certainly, no tribe engaged in anything that was an economic engine and the maker of fates. There were five tribes, located in the south of course, who adopted the colonist form of black chattel slavery. Now for measure, there were over 500 tribes on Total Island and only five who practiced chattel slavery. This 1% includes the Chickasaw, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole, ironically being called the five civilized tribes, because you know, racial patriarchal capitalism. The US accomplished many things by promoting slavery among the tribes in the Southeastern Territories. One was to breed out the indigenous population by having them mixed with white settlers, 
mostly white men, and adopt the practice of chattel slavery. The second goal was to keep the indigenous populations from providing sanctuary for enslaved black folks who ran away from white plantations. Their acceptance of slavery destroyed major escape routes and potential allies for millions of enslaved Africans. As the Chickasaw began integrating with white settlers, a mixed-race aristocracy arose. This mixed-race aristocracy with the chief slave owners among the Chickasaw. They established family dynasties built on plantations of enslaved black folks. Full-blood Chickasaws made up a small percentage of the slave owners. All-around evil person Andrew Jackson was a founder of Memphis and the architect of the Indian Removal Act, also known as the Trail of Tears. The Indian Removal Act forcibly removed tens of thousands of indigenous people from their ancestral homelands to a place we now call Oklahoma. One thing often not mentioned is the presence of enslaved Africans on the Trail of Tears. When the five slave-owning tribes were ejected from their homelands, they brought their saves with them. Fast forward to 1865. Juneteenth is an African-American holiday celebrating the emancipation of all formerly enslaved folks on June 19, 1865. On that day, since indigenous tribes were sovereign nations, their enslaved folks were not yet free. The Afro-Chickasaw and Indian Territory were actually the last population of black people to gain their freedom on Turtle Island. This would come on July 10, 1866, as the Chickasaw finally freed their Afro-Chickasaw enslaved population. They were promised citizenship, but the Chickasaw would never grant them their earned right. This would mean that these black folks were neither citizens of the USA or Indian Territory. They spoke the Chickasaw language, cooked and ate Chickasaw food, dressed Chickasaw, and lived in Chickasaw communities. Their ancestors were buried in Chickasaw territory because Chickasaw territory was their home. They became a large population of people with both African and Chickasaw descent through the natural happenings of proximation. The Chickasaw freedmen would endure 40 years of denial as citizens in a nation of their home until they became citizens of the United States in 1907 with Oklahoma statehood. And understand? The same year the Chickasaw refused to honor promises made to the black freedmen, they extended special privileges to white men who married full-blood Chickasaw women, which allowed them to become, for the first time, full citizens of the tribe. These white men, also called squaw men, were marrying Chickasaw women so they could become tribal members and gain access to tribal lands and resources. They were the real gold diggers. I ain't had to tell y'all, the black folks in the Indian country did not willingly accept this. And this is where we find my new favorite historical figure, King Blue. King Blue was a formerly enslaved man who lived in Pontotoc County and the Stonewall area, not far from the Chickasaw capital. King Blue was one of the chosen leaders of the formerly enslaved who fought to claim full citizenship. He and a delegation had first gone up to Washington, D.C. in 1877, wrote letters in 1882, went to Washington again in 1883, and again in 1888. They were fed up. All this advocating and nothing being done about the plight of his people. At the triumph diplomatic means, King Blue and a collection of Negro Indians decided justice would be by the gun. In 1894, you could find newspaper headlines like, Leading a band of his Negro Indians, all manner of depredations being committed, white men whipped, Indian police in pursuit of the marauders, or King Blue's raid. Negro Indian is an open rebellion in the nation. He is a tyrant and swoops down upon the post office at Stonewall Chickasaw Nation and takes the postmaster and his squaw wife prisoners. Indian government preparing to put the old rascal out. 
King Blue and his band of Negro Indians were the truth, terrorizing the whites and Indians living in the eastern section of the Chickasaw Reservation. King Blue targeted those squaw men we talked about earlier. On one marauding raid, King Blue and his folk pulled up at a white farmer's 500-acre plantation. Old King Blue hogtied the plantation owner and his Indian wife and then destroyed everything. They burned down multiple plantations, putting the Chickasaw Nation in a state of revolutionary terror. King Blue was once a reformist who died a revolutionary. My best future shows King Blue passing away sometime in 1896, giving him about a 48-year window of revolutionary bliss. Since the invention of blackness, there have always been a multitude of black revolutionary theories and practices. King Blue found the ultimate formation of liberation. What do you do when you face not one but two empires who seek to subjugate your people? When you play by the rules, and turns out, they're playing a whole different game anyway. You curse their names and give them hell until death. The Chickasaw Freedmen are still fighting for its full citizenship rights over 100 years after King Blue's transition into ancestorhood. If King Blue believed that the Chickasaw would never grant full citizenship to its Negro kin, at the time of this recording, he would have been right. King Blue is a trailblazer in facing the oppressor and understanding them for who they are. The power to dictate material conditions and manipulate social conditions is a true measure of liberation. And King Blue decided it was time to liberate his people through principled struggle, organization, and pure boldness. Much of the tribal wealth and survival of the Chickasaw is directly tied to the presence of slave ownership and consistent exclusion of black Chickasaw kin, and it is time to end that exclusion. The black Chickasaw and the indigenous freedmen must be extended full citizenship rights with initiatives focused on increasing participation in tribal affairs, cultural reclamation, and reparations without delay. In addition to fighting for sovereignty, non-black indigenous peoples must challenge themselves to interrogate their people's position towards the black kin. The burden of colonization is indeed a heavy one, and yet, positioning the concerns of your black kin as secondary is the same white supremacist logic that is at the root of the USA empire. Acting like the white man ain't saved y'all yet. So what's good? Too many of the black Chickasaw kin have transitioned to ancestorhood without living in the truth of who they are. To the Chickasaw Nation, you do not have to follow the same path your ancestors followed. As colonized subjects in an empire, we are called to make our people whole, and your people will never be whole without the black Chickasaw. Something is holding me back. Uh -huh. Is it because I'm black? Around the time that King Blue was giving the oppressors that work, the first all-black community in the empire, specifically built for black folks, was being built. Orange Mound, Tennessee was created on a former slave plantation on land taken from the Chickasaw. Development of Orange Mound was started on May 2, 1890, and the city was later annexed by the city of Memphis on May 22, 1919. The community was named after the Osage orange trees that were present in the area. The Osage Orange, also known as the Horse Apple, is a green wrinkled fruit with small edible seeds. The wood from an Osage Orange tree is strong and was used by the Chickasaw in the creation of war clubs and bow making. 
The Orange Mound community had grown so strong that by 1968, when Martin Luther King came to Memphis, it was in Orange Mound that he got his hair cut. And what was MLK doing in Memphis in 1968? To support the Black Sanitation Workers' Strike, of course. So let's get into it. In Memphis, African Americans were shut out of most jobs that paid a living wage. For many black men, sanitation was the only job they could get. And let's talk about this job. The job was terribly paid at $1.60 to $1.90 per hour. They were not making a lot of money because that's about $12 to $14 in today's economy. They were not paid overtime even though they were often required to work more than 8 hours a day and most of them had second jobs. They were not paid to work when there was bad weather like rain or snow and in addition to picking up waste for the citizens, the city of Memphis made the sanitation workers do the gardening to beautify its white neighborhoods. The garbage often leaked under clothes. Meanwhile, black sanitation workers received one city-issued uniform but were not allowed to change their clothes on any premises. They faced interpersonal racism from all white supervisors who carried guns and called them boy. The truck crews were usually four folks, but only two could fit into the driver's area. That meant other crew members had to walk next to the moving truck or hold on to its sides for frequent stops. The white mayors of Memphis were notoriously cheap and segregationist. The garbage trucks were rarely updated, creating an environment of danger due to faulty equipment, and sometimes catastrophes did occur. Two workers had been crushed to death in a garbage compactor in 1964, but the faulty equipment had not been replaced. The workers have faced retaliation in 1963, 1964, and 1966 for efforts to organize and go on strike. Matters came to a fever pitch in 1968. During a heavy storm on January 31st, 30 sanitation workers, all of them black, were sent home without pay. The supervisors, all of them white, were paid for the day. On Thursday, February 1st, around 4.30 p.m., Echo Cole and Robert Walker were crushed to death in a truck the workers had complained about for years. Located in the Colonial Acres neighborhood near Colonial and Quincy Street, the garbage compressing piston was accidentally triggered from off to on. These two men were classified as contract workers, so they did not qualify for workmen's compensation and had no life insurance. The city of Memphis paid their families just $500 plus one month's pay. The workers would take no more. On February 12th, over 1,000 black sanitation workers in Memphis walked off the job. Their demands included the right to have union dues automatically deducted from their paycheck, fair promotion practices, a location to change into the uniforms, and an immediate 10 cents pay raise with a 5 cents raise in September. In just two days of strikes, an estimated 10,000 tons of garbage piled up. There were about 200 workers that stayed on the job, and only 38 of the city's 180 truck routes were in action. Soon after the strike began, 47 new sanitation workers were hired, and the pigs were instructed to escort garbage trucks still operating. One of the details often not included is the role of women in the black sanitation workers strike. The women were not passive supporters. They were just as active as the men, but it was in a different way because, you know, racial patriarchal capitalism. Women like Helen Turner, Dorothy McGowan, Florence Ewell, and Jimmy Leach coordinated with their churches to raise money in support of the strikers, made phone calls to energize community members, and created flowers to advertise rallies. There were Black Mondays, when children wouldn't go to school in solidarity with the strikers. They were so well organized that they created their own organization, 
Women on the Move for Equality Now, or Women for short. History often silences these women to the margins of the movement, but the work and dedication of these black women stand on their own. And the work of those black women is what encouraged Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to pull up on Memphis to show his support for the workers for the first time on March 18th. He would return once more on March 28th to lead 5,000 people on a march through a city. Young 16-year-old Larry Payne out of Metro Road High School was shot and killed by a Memphis police officer that same day. His funeral will be at Claiborne Temple on Tuesday, April 2nd. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s last public appearance will be at the same Claiborne Temple on Wednesday, April 3rd, where he delivered his legendary mountaintop speech. The next day, at 6.01 p.m. on April 4th, MLK will be assassinated outside his door at the Black-owned Lorraine Motel, sparking black uprisings across the nation. On April 8th, Coretta Scott King, accompanied by Rosa Parks, will lead a march of 20,000 to Memphis City Hall that her husband never got to complete. It would take two months, tens of thousands of marchers, federal intervention, and the murder of the most prominent revolutionary generations for city leaders to finally agree to the terms of the strike. But now get this, they were willing to go along with the terms, but still claimed they ain't had enough money in the current budget to pay the requested 10 cents raise. It would cost about $558,000, and the cheap and racist mayor would not budge. It would take a secret financial donation from a local businessman for the strike to finally be resolved on April 16th, 65 days after the strike began. In July 2017, the city of Memphis will give out a $50,000 benefit to the 14 remaining survivors of the sanitation strike. 10 were retired and 4 were still on the force. The workers had never received a pension from the city. Many of the strikers worked well into their 70s and 80s, making $18 an hour for the same labor because there was nothing else they could do to feed their families. Today, the sanitation workers of Memphis are fighting for pay raises, air conditioning in the garbage trucks, and full benefits for all workers. The union they won is not strong and has received limited support from younger workers. A few of the children of the strikers now work for the sanitation department though, with at least one becoming a crew chief, a now possibility in 1968. Two interesting insights I pulled from my research. One, we need to treat our sanitation workers with respect socially and financially. This was a pro-labor insurgency of enormous effort that could have been easily resolved if the local government of Memphis was willing to invest in their labor force. So please treat your sanitation workers with respect socially and financially everywhere you may go. Two, the common thread of family. Much of the strength found in the movement was from the children and the wives of the strikers. That drive to provide a better life for the people they loved was at the heart of their ambitions. That sentiment is found in songs like the Jacksonians' Future Black Child, speaking to the concerning future of black children. A bonus thing. During research, I found Ernest Withers was an FBI informant, including work providing information about Emma K's 1968 activity. Ernest Withers was a prominent civil rights photographer who reveals another way black folks navigate the empire. Withers also had a family to feed. It is a message to activists and educators to truly be aware of who's in your midst and to be aware that the state don't stop, so we won't stop.
now that we've set the scene, let's get into the music. We're going to highlight different songs from the playlist from our smokers, steppers, and my conspiracy brothers that capture the different sounds and themes of 1970s Memphis. And Peebles gets the highlight today. The grooves, the lyrics, the song titles, and of course the vocals. And Peoples puts her stamp on the playlist with some of my personal favorites like I Didn't Take Your Man, You Gave Him To Me, and When I'm In Your Arms. Peoples was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1947, the seventh of 11 children in a musical family. She was inducted into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame in 2014. You can listen to Ann Peebles and more on the playlist that can be found in the show notes or on Spotify and YouTube. For my smokers, we have How Strong Is A Woman by Ann Peebles and California Dreaming by the Jacksonians. These songs are perfect for a day of dreaming or getting down to business with the help of the God Tree. For my slow dancers, grab your boo and put on Until You Came Into My Life by Ann Peebles and Dream Girl by Freedom Express. Just ask yourself, when was the last time you slow danced with your boo? For my steppers, we have Diamond in the Rough by The Soul Children and The Breakdown by Rufus Thomas. Summer is still here, so go ahead and put this on for a funky beach day. Coming in on the Let That Man Go category, we have The Hangups of Holding On by The Soul Children and If You Don't Like My Apples by The Minutes. Give Me Love or Liberation goes the lyrics, and so if that man is unsure, let that man go. For my can't get right folks, we have Take Time to Love Your Woman by Spencer Wiggins and Tempted by Marjorie Ingram. And for my revolutionaries having a hard day, we have Get Up About Yourself by The Soul Children and Play the Game by The Vision. In this life, the best you can do is decide what game you're playing and what rules you're trying to play by. I wish the best to everyone on that journey. And that's Thank with DJ Tequesta. Remember to check out the playlist in the show notes and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at DJ Tequesta to check out the newest content and find links to our playlist. And that's D-J-T-E-Q-U-E-S-T-A. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review. You can also search DJ Tequesta on Spotify and YouTube for the music playlist. The playlist features tracks that showcase the song diversity of each funk scene. For my funk heads, you'll want to check out the playlist on YouTube which features deep cuts you won't find on other platforms. Enjoy the music till next time. And remember, breathe and listen to funk.